Good evening, everyone, and happy holidays. Welcome to the December 2020 edition of Outbeat News in Depth. I'm Greg Morelia. Well, I hope this broadcast finds you safe and healthy this holiday season and that you found some way to celebrate during this truly crazy time. Now, in addition to a month being filled with holidays, December is also World AIDS Month and when World AIDS Day happens each year on December 1st. This year's speakers and presentations contained many intersections with HIV and COVID-19. And as the world fights through this new pandemic, the HIV pandemic continues to rage on. Now, in some places, rates of new HIV infections have dropped. But here in Sonoma County, that has not been the case. And tonight, we'll get an update on the status of HIV here locally from Face to Face's Sarah Brewer, the Executive Director, and Lori Violet, the Prevention Director. Both are here to share the latest information on testing, prevention, and treatment. But first, here's your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, December 27th, 2020. This is Greg Morelia with your Outbeat Radio News for the week of December 27th, 2020. Lawmakers in Switzerland approved two historic bills earlier this month, one establishing marriage equality and the other making it easier for transgender and intersex residents to change the name and gender marker on official documents. Both houses of the Federal Assembly, Switzerland's parliament, passed the marriage equality bill by large margins. The legislation has been under consideration since 2013, but the Federal Democratic Union, a far-right Christian-identified political party, announced plans to call a national referendum on same-sex marriage, according to the Swiss publication The Local. LGBTQ plus activists, however, said they're ready for a challenge and expect voters to affirm equal marriage rights if there is a referendum. And here in the U.S., last week, a U.S. District Court judge ruled that a prison could not violate an inmate's constitutional rights by denying her from having gender-affirming surgery and has ordered correctional officials to allow the inmate to make such arrangements. Nicole Rose Campbell was diagnosed with gender dysphoria prior to going to the Racine Correctional Institution, a medium-security men's prison in the state of Wisconsin. She was permitted to receive hormone treatments, counseling, and even allowed to wear some women's clothing but was initially denied the opportunity to receive sex reassignment surgery. After a seven-year battle, the courts ruled in Campbell's favor. Chief Justice of the Western District of Wisconsin, James D. Peterson, wrote in the ruling that the state of Wisconsin identified no practical impediment to providing sex reassignment surgery to Campbell. The surgery, he said, is no more expensive or difficult than other treatments that the Department of Corrections routinely provides. Campbell was sentenced to 34 years imprisonment for first-degree sexual assault of a child back in 2007. She first requested gender confirmation surgery in 2013, which officials denied, despite allowing her to receive other types of treatment. The judge also recommended but did not order that corrections officials move Campbell to a women's prison in the meantime. All of the state's prison facilities are segregated by sex, and only one correctional center under the state's purview houses multiple male and female inmates. And here in California, Brian Kleinmeyer and his boyfriend, Daniel Kane, were shocked this last Wednesday morning when they awoke and saw the Christmas decorations outside their Eureka, California home had been destroyed. The couple found the gingerbread man they had up in their yard holding hands had been torn down and placed beneath their gay pride flag. When they looked closer, they realized the gingerbread man had been smeared with feces. Eureka Police Chief Steve Watson told the local newspaper that the crime was absolutely horrendous and appalling. 
Police are investigating it as a possible hate crime. And as this is our last news segment of 2020, I'd like to take a moment to thank our amazing news partner at the LGBTQ Nation, The Advocate Magazine, and The Bay Area Reporter. You can find links to all of these publishers on our website at OutbeatNews.com. From all of us here at Outbeat Radio News, Happy New Year. I'm Greg Morelia. December 1st each year is World AIDS Day, and it's also the birth date of Matthew Shepard. Now, before we get to our guest tonight, I wanted to take a moment to share something special with you from this year's Remembrance of Matthew Shepard, held on December 1st at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. This is the place where Matthew was finally laid to rest two years ago. Here's the homily presented this year by the always inspiring Bishop Gene Robinson. Let me add my welcome to that of Dean Hollerith. We're here in this uh, beautiful chapel of uh, St. Joseph of Arimathea. If that name doesn't ring a bell with you, this is the person who offered a tomb for Jesus to be laid in following his, his uh, crucifixion. And uh, what a fitting name to be the chapel in which at the back of it, and you'll see it in just a, a little while, um, is the crypt where uh, two years ago we laid Matthew Shepard's ashes to rest. Uh, a great honor for this great cathedral. And then two, uh, a year ago, we put up a plaque uh, a marking uh, his being in this chapel. And so it's become a kind of a pilgrimage place uh, for those who would like to remember Matthew Shepard and uh, the amazing effect that his death and then what his parents have done uh, with that tragic situation uh, to better the world. Through this service, uh, we've had the word blessing used a number of times, and you've just heard this uh, portion of Matthew's gospel, uh, which talks about who's blessed. Now, this happens to be one of the most popular uh, portions of scripture ever, and for the life of me, I can't figure out why. I mean, being blessed sounds like a great thing until you look at the situations in which Scripture says we are blessed. You know, when we mourn, when, when we are persecuted, when we are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, they're all uh, times in which uh, we're in these dire straits. I mean, is that what we got to have in order to be blessed by God? I mean, we bless food before we eat it. We bless buildings before we cut the ribbon. What, what is a blessing anyway? And what does it mean to be blessed? This, uh, this portion of scripture comes from uh, early in the Gospel of Matthew in what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, something very similar occurs also in the Gospel of Luke, but instead of being set on a mountain, it says that uh, uh, Jesus and all the people came to a flat place. So it's often referred to as the Sermon on the Plain. However, uh, they could be talking about the same event, right? We all know two different people witness the same event. They take entirely different things away from it. 
And whereas Matthew emphasizes the spiritual, right, when we are persecuted for righteousness sake, when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, when we are poor in spirit. Well, Luke just cuts through all that. Never mind the spiritual stuff. He's like, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are the persecuted. And the fact of the matter is, they probably both got it right. And probably Jesus, when he was doing this teaching, meant both of those things. So what then does, what then does blessing mean? I have, I have two thoughts about that. Uh, one is that because, because we are blessed when we are in extreme circumstances and extreme need, it seems that even though God has been there all the time, it's in those circumstances where you and I have a greater opportunity, a greater likelihood that we will notice God, that we will see what God is doing, at the very least accompanying us on this journey, which is often troublesome. And so perhaps it is in these dire circumstances that God has a chance to get through to us. And that's something we can actually be thankful for. That when anyone is in difficulty, God is very nearby. To be honest with you, I, I don't think Matthew Shepard was ever alone on that terrible night when he was beaten. I think God was there right beside him. And knowing Matthew's faith, I believe that he knew God was there with him. Well, I think God was there when Michael Brown was killed, and when Tamir Rice was killed, and when Breonna Taylor was killed. God was right there, not to change the situation, but to be as close as possible with those who are being victimized so that God might be a blessing to them. Or think of this pandemic, my gosh, all the people who are unemployed, all those who are food insecure, all of those who know someone who's dying in the hospital, a family member, and cannot go see them. That's about as extreme as it gets. But it's a time when God actually might become better known to us. Because it's in those times that God draws near. God draws near the, the transgender woman, the African-American transgender woman in particular, who, who risks and, and so courageously means to be herself even when it is so dangerous and in the face of so many people like her being killed. If God isn't willing to be near us in those times, then I don't know that I have any need of that kind of God. But my own experience is that when I am clearer than I usually am about how much I need God, God is there to reveal God's self to me. God is faithful 
no matter what. And the second thing about these blessings that come in times of dire straits, it's that when you and I are actually caring for someone in those dire straits, that, that we actually are blessed as well. You know, it's interesting, uh, Jesus rarely talks about heaven as being something far off and happens after we're dead. Jesus is much more likely to talk about um, uh, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven coming near us, right, in this life. Like, this, heaven isn't something we have to wait for. Heaven can be right here in the sense that when God is that close to us, it seems we absorb the heart of God. When we care for those who are persecuted, when we take care of the hungry, when we care about the poor, we are absorbing the actual heart of God who is ever closer to us when we experience those things. So it's, it's my feeling that when we are working on those kinds of things in our culture, in the church and beyond the church, we are being blessed in identifying with those extreme and terrible circumstances. When I was the Bishop of New Hampshire, I spent every Christmas Eve at the women's prison, the state women's prison in New Hampshire. It always seemed to me the place the bishop ought to be instead of in a cathedral somewhere. And I have to tell you, when those women prayed, they prayed. A lot of them were there because they got sick and tired of, of being abused by their husbands and in, a, in making a terrible decision, they picked up a knife or a gun and did something that they'll pay for the rest of their lives. On, that, on those Christmas Eves, they didn't know some of them, where their children were. They weren't home to wrap presents. They weren't there to get up on Christmas morning with their kids. And to hear those women pray, to be in those kinds of dire circumstances, and to be so open in expressing their need of God, I would always leave feeling like the greatest blessing that night was mine to be anywhere near these women who were so aware that God was near them. And so I think that any time that we turn ourselves toward the vulnerable and seek to alleviate those circumstances that make life so terrible, we become a part of that blessing. I mean, what Judy and Dennis Shepard did following Matt's terrible and tragic death is, is a miracle in and of itself, is a blessing to everyone they have touched to fight hate crimes, not just against LGBTQ people, but against people of color, every, against anyone. It's to take something tragic and to let God in enough to transform it into something really quite wonderful. And Lord knows we live in a time when there's plenty of opportunity to find people in dire straits. 
Matt's birthday today, December 1st, is also World AIDS Day, something that uh, you know, people forget. We've had um, epidemics before, and this one continues, and it has so much pain associated with it. But of course, there's today's pandemic with all of its suffering. We have our democracy, at least to a lot of people feels like our democracy is under attack. There is so much polarization. There's just an unending number of circumstances that you and I can get involved in and bring a blessing to those situations. I assure you that God is there. And all you and I have to do is keep our eyes open and we find God there. So we wanted to honor Matt yet once again. After burying his ashes here and a year later putting up a plaque so that pilgrims to this place could know where in fact his remains lay. But this year, we wanted to look forward and, and, and point out that we live in a world full of pain that needs our attention. And maybe we would all go a little less stir-crazy in our apartments or our homes if we were thinking about those people instead of ourselves. Indeed, we just might find God. So, on this day, on Matthew's birthday, remember Matt and remember Judy and Dennis and what they have done with Matt's tragic death. Work for justice. You want to know God? You want to, you want to meet God? Work for justice. I promise you, God will be there. And be on the lookout for the holy anytime you work with those who are most vulnerable. And you will find not only what blessing is, but you will find that you are a blessing. On this year's World AIDS Day on December 1st, there was a conversation with mayors in big cities across the country about the rise in HIV infections continuing to happen in communities of color. These leaders also talked about the socioeconomic disparities relating to accessing health care that exists throughout our country and how they're impairing an effort to end HIV once and for all. Earlier this month, England reported an apparent impact of COVID-19 quarantining. In that country, new HIV infections dropped dramatically this year, but that is not the case here locally. And here to give us a state of HIV in Sonoma County are two extraordinary women from face to face. Lori Violette, the Prevention Director, and Sarah Brewer, the Executive Director. Sarah and Lori, welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, great to have you here on this holiday weekend and to talk about uh, this year's World AIDS Day and also kind of the status of things in, in Sonoma County. It's been such a totally crazy year with COVID. And I know just from doing some volunteer work with Face to Face that in March last year, things really changed. So kind of give our listeners a, a sense of 
gosh, what's happened since March at Face to Face? How's the operation going and, and how's it been changed and impacted by COVID? Sure. Well, thank you. Thank you for the chance to be here and to talk about all this. Um, well, you're right. Things got a little crazy in March. Um, you know, with the initial shutdown, we weren't really sure what was going to happen. And so just to be safe, we did shut down our offices, but we were still considered an essential service. Um, so Lori jumped in her car with all of her syringe exchange um, supplies and overdose prevention supplies and took our syringe exchange mobile. Um, we were, you know, concerned about having people in the building and also our staff. So, um, but we knew that our clients were going to need us and we knew we needed to prevent an HIV outbreak, you know, in addition to a COVID outbreak. Um, so Lori got out there and was also supplying some PPE where we could and just connecting with people and making sure that they, um, you know, were informed about what was going on. Likewise, our care team that provides services to people living with HIV, um, you know, the magical word of the year is pivot. <laughs> so we right. pivoted to become a remote operation, which we never had. I mean, you know, it's in our name, right? Face to face. We did everything in person. And that's really what we were all about is spending quality time with people to support them with their needs. Um, so we had to learn how to do that remotely. And our case managers and housing specialists, you know, we got our systems in place and um, our HOPWA grant, which is the housing opportunities for people living with HIV and AIDS, um, provided us with a little bit extra money, which allowed us to put some of our most vulnerable clients who are experiencing homelessness into hotels so that they could shelter in place. Oh, wow. So we had about, uh, in total, about 10 people who we kept in, in hotel rooms for almost three months. Um, some of whom had been released from the hospital, for example, and like going to the street and, and being vulnerable to COVID was just, it just wasn't an, an option. You know, we needed to make sure that wasn't going to happen. And likewise, a lot of our other clients who, you know, many of whom, especially older clients who are already experiencing isolation and loneliness, I mean, this just totally exacerbated that. Um, so it was really important us to stay in communication with them. And, and we got on the phone and contacted everybody just to see how they were doing and you know, especially our Latinx clients, mm -hmm. knowing that they were experiencing and, you know, it, it, additional burdens as well. Um, and we were really fortunate to be able to gain some extra funding to support them. So um, provided our, our Latinx and, and um, BIPOC clients with some funding for food cards and, you know, back payments and rents and things like that to keep them going. Wow. So all in all, in all you know, we've, I, I would say that we we bounced pretty quickly and figured out how to do this and have been, you know, and of course, staying in close communication with the county and with the clinics and making sure that people were still connected to medical care. Um, and we reopened our offices in, when was that, Lori? Like July, maybe June? Yeah, I think it was late June. Late June for syringe exchange. So we, we operate everything at the door now. Um, and, you know, I mean, there's silver linings in all of this because our strategic plan, we had identified really wanting to scale up our, our syringe exchange services and, and outreach. And so it allowed Lori to really get out there and identify some new people and new places where we can be of further service. Great. And it sounds like you got really good support from County Health, who's been intimately involved in sort of dictating what people can do and can't do. Um, and yeah. so they, they're, they're behind everything that you're doing and, and making sure that it can happen. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and you know, and, and of course, all the county's resources for, for example, this uh, HIV surveillance nurse who we work very closely with, you know, she was pulled to COVID, everybody was pulled to COVID. So, you know, we were very fortunate to still be able to maintain communication and, and, and stay, you know, abreast of what was going on and where the needs were. Um, 
but of course, yeah, I mean, it's still, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't mean to make it sound too rosy. There, of course, there have been a lot of challenges. Sure. But, um, you know, everybody, I think having the, the systems in place that we do as a community for communication and really supporting community-wide efforts, um, those held strong. Great. Well, Lori, let me go to you with this question. Uh, there was an article that came out uh, earlier this fall about the drop in new HIV infections in England. And the article talked about how COVID is really, you know, isolated people. And apparently enough people are being isolated and not being exposed to HIV that they've seen a pretty dramatic drop in numbers. What have you seen or what have you heard going on in Sonoma County with uh, new HIV infections? Yes, thanks for asking that question. Um, we actually um, are not seeing what England is seeing. Um, in March of uh this year, we were already past the total number of new HIV infections for the previous year. So uh, what with saying that is um, that our rates of HIV here in Sonoma County and throughout the state of California and throughout the, um, the broader United States has been on the rise since COVID. Um, folks, yes, are being isolated, but activities that can transmit HIV are still taking place. Wow. Um, less access to folks being able to get on PrEP, which is the prophylactics to help prevent HIV, right. um, have dropped in the number of, of people being initiated onto PrEP. Um, and so it's it's really had a, a, a effect locally and natural na nationally. So as you think about that and, you know, the stay-at-home orders and all that's out there around COVID that would keep people away from each other and potentially being exposed. Is your sense that the new infections are coming from uh, needles or are people out there just having unprotected sex anyway, regardless of COVID? What do you think? Yeah. You know, I mean, from what we know so far of this year, it's really all over the board. There's not a, a set population of people or a subset of, of population of people that it's totally just, you know, getting in the other populations are not being affected by it. That's not the case. It's really all over the board. Um, I think it's a little bit of all of that, um, as well as what we're not seeing is the Latinx community being tested. And that has been a population of people who we have um, wanted to reach out to and have reached out to, to encourage testing. So that's one population that we haven't seen the outcome of what COVID has really done because we're not getting all of those new diagnoses yet. Got it. Um, yeah, so it's really alarming. Um, we're doing what we can to to help prevent, get more people connected with PrEP. Obviously, our syringe exchange program is still rolling hard. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think early next year we'll be able to see some more numbers that come out around what those uh, effects of COVID have have really done in our HIV testing world. Interesting. Can I can I yeah. add to that too? Please. Lori touched on a really good point around testing. You know, another impact of COVID was that when the hospitals were shut down, labs were shut down, oh. and also um, clinic. You know, the clinical labs were shut down, or they were prioritizing COVID. We as well had to freeze our HIV testing for a while. Lori's done a great job of getting our um, in-home HIV tests. Um, kits available for people, but we just haven't seen the same numbers. So I think you know this is also an issue of testing 
And, you know, so the numbers that we're seeing are people who've had access to tests, but we're confident that there's a, a number of people who have not been tested. And also I think, you know, when she's talking about our Latinx population, there's a huge stigma um, of course, you know, around that community, around COVID. And so, I mean, you can imagine them accessing, you know, laboratory services and hospital services for HIV, um, you know, in addition to COVID, that there's a, there's a reason that they're not getting tested. Sure. So, Lori, I read uh, this fall several articles talking about the dramatic rise in overdose deaths in places like San Francisco. Uh, what are you seeing in Sonoma County in terms of both the numbers of overdoses, but also the potential risk that this county faces? Yes, it's it's so unfortunate. And um, we have definitely seen a dramatic rise in overdoses that have been reversed and overdose deaths that have taken place in our county. Um, and just like in San Francisco, fentanyl has, has you know, hit the scene and on the streets and it is um, affecting people and their lives like no other. I have never seen anything like this in my 22 years of harm reduction work. Um, and so it uh, is very alarming. Um, and I, we give out tons of naloxone, which is the reversal drug um, in an event of an opiate overdose. And those, that's a, um, a service that we um, provide to community members. Anybody who wants to access that has the availability to get it from us. Um, also, the vulnerability assessment that you were referring to, um, that assessment um, was just newly released from um, the California Department of Public Health. Mm -hmm. And it is talking about how what counties are at most vulnerable to HIV infection, Hep C infection, and overdose deaths? So Sonoma County is—it's a—it's a low, medium risk categories. Sonoma County is medium on both of those categories for HIV and overdose. However, all of the counties north of us. Humboldt County, Lake County, and Mendo County are all, all high on each of those. So um, it's, it's very alarming. It's very alarming that this is happening. Um, you know, we're doing everything we can to get um, in the hands of people who use drugs and people who love loved ones who use drugs, naloxone. Great. And they can get that from face to face. They can, free of charge. All of our prevention services are free. Excellent. Sarah, you mentioned uh, clients that you're caring for coming out of hospitals. I'm curious, what's your sense about uh, people living with HIV and being able to access medical care? Have people been impaired by, let's say, the volume of folks being treated for COVID in our local hospitals and, and where they're not having the same level of access for support for HIV? Well, I, I, I don't think so. I mean, everything that I understand from, from Kaiser and from the community health centers that provide HIV care, they did a beautiful job of making sure people had multiple months of medication, were connected, knew how to get you know telehealth services and got connected remotely. So I think medical care and medication wise, people have been in pretty good shape. And, and once, you know, they could come, if it was essential for them to come in for hospital services, they could. Mm -hmm. um, I think where we're seeing the impact more is really around mental health, um, you know, where mental health services, in-person treatment groups, things like that have been, it's just not the same when it's done remotely. For some people they're thriving and it's fine, but we have a number of clients who, you know, have shared with us that they're not interested in, in 
you know, being on a computer or on the phone to receive their mental health care and, and as a result are isolating. Well, and not everybody has access to the technology. I mean, I know right. as a teacher yeah. teaching six college classes remotely right now, that, that that is one of the biggest struggles is that not everybody has a hotspot. Not everybody has access to Wi-Fi or a device to be able to get on Zoom. That's right. That's absolutely right. Yeah. yeah that's got to be challenging. So tell me about the home testing process for those who want to get an HIV test. I mean, it used to be you'd come into face-to-face, right? We've done shows on this. We have a, a prior show where we actually recorded a testing session where so people could see what a testing session was like and some of the counseling behind it and to sort of demystify it. But none of that's possible today. So how are you doing it? Yeah, so we actually... Um spearheaded our rollout testing. Um, it's a very simple process. Um, we, we have several support to help individuals through that process. So it's basically folks call or come to our office or go on the website and see that we have in-home test kits. They come um, pick up the test kit. We explain to them the process um, by written information as well as the manufacturer's information. And then we have a video of how to do the test kit step-by-step on our website. Um, and I think one important piece to to um, kind of nail on is that we are still here to provide the counseling support for folks who are doing in-home test kits. So oftentimes people have several questions around, you know, the fluids that can transmit HIV, the window period, you know, other resources for like PrEP or PEP or STD testing. All of those things are still taking place. It's just take, taking place in a different way because it's not face-to-face in person, right? It's over the phone. Um, so same with any linkage that we would do for a person who uh, needed to get confirmatory testing for HIV or PrEP or STD testing, same things are happening. We're still linking people in for services as needed. It's also an incentivized program. So we are providing $20 Safeway gift cards for individuals who, um, after they do their test, if they come back or call us and give us information about how the test went for them and if they had further questions. So it's a way that we can follow up with them. And that's been very successful. Oh, nice. Um, So when are those tests available? If someone's on winter break, let's say right now, or, you know, they're thinking a a pre-New Year's resolution, what are the hours that people can come in? Absolutely. And great question. Um, So Tuesday through Friday from nine to four 30, we are available those whole 32 hours to provide the services that we're providing through our taco truck style system. Fantastic. Um, Yes. And, and the test itself, I remember, you know, we were sort of making a shift from the oral swab to a needle stick, a little finger stick in the, in the finger. What's that look like now for someone doing this at home? Are they using the swab? Yes. Yeah, so the California Department of Public Health um, Office of AIDS um, was able to put a stop on the finger prick from happening and being able to implement back in the oral um, because of COVID. So um, the orals are, that's how a person would test themselves is through oral fluid. Oh, perfect. So that's really super easy. Don't have to deal with blood. Very easy to administer at home and you get your results in 20 minutes. 
That's correct. Yeah. And I feel like an, another important piece um, to add is that, you know, it's this home test is, is for folks that are 16 years of age or older. And it's also for individuals who have a stable living situation. So for folks that are um, not in a um, indoor shelter setting, um, which some of our clients are fit that situation, they would um, need to be able to have some form of a contained environment to perform the test. So with that being said, some of our shelterless folks, we have, um, you know, provided feedback on how to make that happen. And okay. it's as simple as just being contained in their tent, um, you know, making sure that the temperature is, is at a, a, a good temperature. If it's during the day, you know, testing themselves in a bathroom, that type thing. So people are very savvy on figuring out how to make that environment um, stable to do a test. Great. And what's the response been? Have you seen a lot of people come in? We actually have had a, um, it started off slow and then it started getting, you know, upticking from there. So we, we've we had um, several folks coming for testing. We're, yeah, I'd say about 65 people thus far. That's fantastic. So for a, the linkage to care piece, if someone does test positive, how has that changed in the COVID world? So good question, Greg. Um, really, the only thing that has changed is the face-to-face -face process as far as having folks be with us and us being able to link them in. It's all done over the phone. So we still have the same process of contacting the clinic, setting up a lab appointment, um, and getting the client in for their first initial appointment. And then the support piece is still Great. the mechanism that's in place as well. Great. And the access to service, right? I mean, people can still get treatment in a timely manner. COVID hasn't yes. gotten in the way of that. That's fantastic. Not at all. No. Um, let's shift a bit. Uh, Sarah, you talked about the new strategic plan that has been in the works for oh, about a year or so now. It, it was just published and sent out. And you've really, way ahead of what we saw with COVID, identified a demographic in this county that needs attention, uh, the Latinx community and youth. I don't know where even where to start with that, but talk about the strategic plan for our listeners who have not seen it yet uh, and the demographics here in the county that you all are concerned about. Sure, happy to. Thank you. Um, right, exactly. We, we've identified, as we've been talking about, you know, I mean, as we said this year too, that new infections are all over the map, meaning different ages, different um, risk behaviors, things like that. But nationally, and, and locally, even what we're seeing is that a quarter of new infections each year are people under 25, wow. um, and which is crazy, but it's also, it kind of makes sense when you think about this is a generation of people who've grown up um, where there's always been treatment. Um, you know, and we've been working closely, getting to really furthering some partnerships with some um, organizations like LGBTQ Connections and Positive Images. Um, and, you know, when they, they shared with us a story about, um, providing sex education to, um, you know, young adults and, you know, a story that sticks out in my head that I think is just really representative of this is um, somebody asked in the class of the educator, why are you focusing so much on HIV? I mean, isn't herpes more um, threatening to us than HIV? And it was kind of this moment of like, what, you know? <laughs> and wow. so, you know, really going into it, like, because in their mind, herpes isn't treatable. 
but HIV is. And so, you know, I mean, I think that just really illustrates um, the difference in perception. And now also with PrEP, you know, I mean, again, there's a, there's a pill a day and soon to be an injection that you can take to prevent the spread of HIV. So I think in, in their minds, it's much more manageable. The other thing that we're seeing is that when people are showing up for a test, when they do, they, they don't know that they're at risk. And so when they show up, it's not, they're, they're being diagnosed with HIV and AIDS, which means that they have been infected for a long time and didn't know it. And the virus has had a chance to really multiply in their system. So I think all of this speaks to, yes, there is education that's happening, but I think that the perception, it's, it's different. Um, you know, those of us that experienced the AIDS epidemic and saw people dying and just the pain that went with it and just how awful of a disease it is, those stories and images and experiences are, um, you know, they just don't know about them. They right. just don't. So, and likewise with our Latinx community, I mean, of course, our strategic plan, we're really talking about intersections because, um, you know, you can have young Latinx or you can, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's all the intersections, but um, same with Latinx, you know, as we were just talking about before is that, you know, less access to healthcare and especially under this political climate, the last four years, there's just been, you know, people are feeling really threatened, really scared, afraid of ICE, you know, whether they're documented or not, they're, you know, terrified of, being captured, you know, I mean, right. and being harassed. And so, you know, they're not supposed to go into the hospitals, but that doesn't mean that they won't. It doesn't mean that the fear doesn't exist. So, um, you know, I think that it's really drawn a lot of people underground. And, and additionally, there's still a huge stigma around homosexuality, around, you know, around HIV. So, I mean, that for us is something that we really need to address. And, um, you know, in addition to that, we're seeing huge rises in injection drug use, locally and in the country, as well as overdoses. And so all of these are, you know, we talk about stigma, we talk about discrimination, we talk about lack of education, we talk about, um, right. you know, and, and rise in drug use, these are all the things that lead to increased HIV infections. And I think that, you know, in, in, in a country where our health system is not really a system <laughs> and where there's unequal access to healthcare and to education and to prevention efforts and to treatment, that, I mean, this is gonna be a natural expression of that. And of course the disparities that we see are people of color mostly. So black, yeah. Latinx, you know, brown people, indigenous people. So give us the, the, the top three bullet points then from, the, from that strategic plan. I mean, I think folks in this county who know face-to-face -face know what the mission is uh, because that mission has been there really from the beginning which is to deal with and, and then now to end HIV in Sonoma County. So what are sort of the top three most important pieces of the strategic plan in your mind that you want this community to know about? Uh, so we have said really it's about scaling up our prevention efforts. And with that, it's scaling up our prep services and our syringe exchange program. You know, I think we're already doing a fantastic job. But as we've identified, there's there are still people falling through the cracks. Um, we've also identified that it's not something that we can be doing alone and that we really need to strengthen our community partnerships. I mean, we already have a really great network, but that it's, you know, as a nonprofit organization and as a community, it doesn't make sense for us to try to do all the work when there are other really great organizations that are focusing on some of these populations or, you know, some of these issues. So, you know, let's share the resources and leverage our expertise and do this together. So that's something else that we've identified. Um, and then also really with our, our uh, Latinx population is just making sure that we're, like we say, as, as representative and as, as um, just really committed to getting out there and to, to doing all we can to support them. And not only in our um, you know, prevention efforts, but in our care efforts as well. Fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, 
you mentioned PrEP, and we know the FDA approved this last year a second drug uh, in addition to Trivada to be used as a PrEP. You alluded to an injection coming. Um, so tell us more about this PrEP Navigator role that's going to be added next year and about PrEP in general and access to it. I mean, even the laws have changed now. You don't need to have a prescription, right? That's right. Yes, that's right. They're, it, they're really trying to make it so that um, anybody who wants to get PrEP can get PrEP. There's less barriers for folks to access PrEP. Um, so you mentioned about um, the PrEP navigation. And so, like Sarah said, we, we have hired a person who will begin in January that will um, really work on getting our PrEP out to people who want to want to receive PrEP. We are working on um, implementing some newer um models for our prep which will be a prep telesite so people will be able to come to us and access their prep medication through a doctor through telemedicine um and um so along with that the the new medication which is discovy and then the the first um medication which was truvada those two medications are still what people would take on a daily basis to prevent hiv and then there's a a newer um injectable medication that will be coming out um, either end of this month or early next year, so January, and that will be a 60-day um, medication, so it'll be a shot that a person would have to get every two months to prevent HIV. Wow. Um, and so that's, that's, that's the newest piece of that um, part of PrEP. You, you, you mentioned that a person can come in, they'll be able to access um, a medical provider by phone. Because I, yes. we, we know a lot of people don't like going to their doctor. They don't. They may have access to it through, let's say, Kaiser, but they don't want to work through that system or for whatever reason they don't want to, ha to go to their own doctor to get PrEP. Um, and we don't want that to be a barrier. So they can come into face-to-face -face and access it. But you can actually go down to like Walgreens or CVS, right, and, and get it through a pharmacist. Is that true? You can. Yeah. The, the new law is SB 159. And that law um, is it's allowing pharmacists to actually prescribe prep on site to people. Um, so they don't have to come in and have a prescription from a medical doctor. The pharmacist can say, I can walk into a pharmacy like Safeway, right? Walgreens, TVS, that type thing, and say that I wanted to get prep. And the pharmacist then, um, you know, will go through their protocols on asking me certain questions, but they can prescribe me PrEP. I can leave right then with my PrEP prescription. They will be able to navigate the system who will pay for the meds and um, be able to get me signed up to get my labs done and all of that, all of those things that come along with PrEP. So let's talk about that because PrEP is not cheap. I think I read uh -huh. something $3,000 plus a month. What about for people that don't have medical insurance? Um, how do they afford it? So a lot of the programs that are in place that would um, pay for the prescription um, and the labs and some of the, the, the visits and things that would come along with a person being on PrEP, um, there's 
pharmaceutical sponsorships. Gilead, Gilead has their own kind of sponsorship. Um, there's a PrEP app that's ran through um, the Office of AIDS, which, which pays for folks' medication. Um, there's Medi-Cal, you know, there's, if there's clinics that are serving Ryan White monies, there's monies there to help with folks that are, are living with HIV, right? Um, so there's, there's several different ways to get PrEP paid for. Great. Yeah, and, I, and I'd add to that too, that's part of the work that our prep navigator will be supporting as well is really helping people go through all of their, you know, look at their income, look at their insurance and then say, okay, where are the cracks? And then how can we help you fill them in? Um, there's been a really strong advocacy network in California and, and a commitment by the California Department of Public of Health. Wait, mm -hmm. California, yes, exactly. <laughs> that, um, you know, that this should be paid for similar to how HIV treatment drugs were. Yeah. So, so they exist, people can get them. Yeah, because ultimately it's cheaper to have people on PrEP than it is to treat somebody for a lifetime for HIV. I mean, that only makes totally, financial totally. sense. Totally. I think the figure is something like $400,000 in a lifetime for a person living with HIV. Yeah. But I think, you know, yeah, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely. And I think the other piece too is, you know, with Truvada is coming off patent. I don't think that we're going to see it become super cheap anytime soon. But in the next couple of years, it will certainly become more affordable. Discovy is the new drug that's going to be on patent. Um, you know, and there's, I think Discovy is appropriate for, you know, for some people, but generally, you know, Truvada still, my understanding from doctors that I've spoken with is that Truvada will still work very well for, for many people. Right. And those are all questions that become very individualized that you should talk with your doctor or even a pharmacist about in terms of picking which drug is right. Absolutely. Um, now, there are some steps. You can't just go in and, and walk out with a prescription. You have to be tested for HIV to make sure that you are not HIV positive first, because that can be damaging to you if you were to use PrEP while you're positive, right? Because the, the drug is only part of the treatment. Is that still the, the belief? Yes. Um, so a person should, should come down and get a test first, and then uh, either go to a pharmacist directly or go to their doctor directly or go to the prep navigator at face-to-face -face after January 1st for a, a referral, right? Yes. Yeah. And I mean, an another thing that we're going to be having our prep navigator do is, is like we talked about, you know, building community networks is, is engaging with the pharmacies as well to help them, you know, I I'm sure not all, I'm sure they're aware of it, but maybe not really how to operationalize it in the best way for clients. So part of the work that we're hoping to do is to really establish those networks and to be a resource for pharmacists as well. Great. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh Lori, earlier you mentioned, you know, sort of a rise in IV drug use. It's, it's an epidemic in the country. It has been for years and years and years now. And it's, I know it's still an extraordinary problem in Sonoma County. Uh, Oregon recently decriminalized, to a certain extent, drug possession for personal use. You know, what's your thoughts on that? And uh, the impact, the potential impact here in Sonoma County for, I don't know, accessing treatment, reducing IV drug use, keeping people healthy. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I am a harm reductionist at heart. So I am totally for whatever is going to reduce harm for people. Right. Um, and so I, I do believe that um, decriminalizing some of the, the drug laws that have been based upon racism for centuries and centuries um, are, is a really good idea to get rid of. Um, and, you know, I mean, in other places like Portugal and things in other countries, they're, 
they have there's that's an example for the United States to go by on how it could successfully work. Um, so I, I I agree with that. I also agree with having safe consumption sites available for folks who are using to be able to be safe at what they're doing and not die from an addiction. Right. Yeah, exactly. Because if I'd add to that too, I mean, I think the fundamental idea is that drug addiction is a medical problem, not a criminal problem. And so if you can offer people treatment and support rather than criminalizing them, it's more effective, not only for them, but it's also cheaper. And it allows the police to focus on the things that they need to be focusing on and, and, you know, other crimes and not criminalizing people for, um, you know, for their addiction. Right. Well, no matter whether you believe that or not, we know factually that putting people in prison has not had any impact on lowering or discouraging people from using drugs, whether they're legal or not. Right. So, yeah, and it's also extremely more expensive. Absolutely. I mean, astronomically more expensive. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense financially either. Yeah, $80,000 a year, I think, is what I read most recently in California to keep someone in, in prison for one year. It's actually cheaper to send them to Harvard University with housing for one year wow. than to keep him in our state prison system, which is, is crazy to me. That's, that's outrageous. Uh, you know, the CDC has certainly taken its hits under the Trump administration. COVID has impacted uh, the workload and the funding. What's the impact been on face-to-face -face from the feds and the state in terms of funding? Well, I can speak on the prevention end of it. I feel like for prevention, um, we have not um, seen as of yet any kind of cuts um, for our funding. If anything, we have seen increases in availability for programs that are serving individuals that have substance use disorder or opioid use disorder, um, really um, highlighting um, programs to get services for medicated assisted treatment or MAT. And so there's lots of funding available now to help people um, to get them into um, a, a program that would help them be safer, less used, not necessarily abstinence, but just a safer way to, to get through their life. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure about care. Sarah would be able to speak more about that, but for our prevention end, we have not seen a, a huge impact yet. Good. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, the, you know, the, the logic behind that is that those monies, those programs are part of harm reduction and about, you know, reducing HIV infections and hep C infections. And like thinking about Portugal, I think when they implemented those policies, they saw huge dramatic drops in HIV infections. And it's, it's true that so, I mean, in line with that, it's there's less and less funding available specifically for HIV because recognizing that HIV is part of this bigger nexus of, you know, healthcare access and, mm -hmm. you know, and, and all the things that go with it, all the things that we're talking about, all the um, disparities and, you know, and all the other issues that our people are facing. Um, so for, you know, HIV care for the, the social services right now, HOPWA continues to be strong. And I think that we're, because that's really about housing where housing is healthcare. So again, that's about, you know, the social determinants of health. Um, so, you know, and for, for us for this year, it's been a little challenging, obviously, with COVID. Um, we had to cancel some of our fundraisers. We as an organization are very much, um, you know, very reliant on donors and our events. And so not being able to hold those events has a real impact on us. And, and I mentioned earlier that, you know, we saw very generous support coming in for specifically for people who are being impacted by COVID. So for us, we did a lot of pass-through to make sure that our clients didn't fall through the cracks. 
Um, but you know, operationally, those that leaves the agencies vulnerable. So, I mean, you're absolutely right in identifying that there's there's less and less funding, and certainly, you know, but but CDC, I think that there's still money around for STD prevention, and HIV is a part of that, and and as Lori identified, around um, substance use and overdose mm -hmm. prevention. Well, that's a perfect segue into my last question, which is here we are four days before the end of the year. People are thinking about their last minute tax deduction for 2020, a year we would all like to put behind us. Yes. Uh, but this really is an, an ideal time to make some decisions about where to give locally. And Face to Face is a nonprofit organization that, as you say, depends on money from local donors. So this is your chance, listeners. Where should they go right now if they want to make a donation? Thank you for that. Yeah, we really appreciate that. Like we said, it's this is um this has been a tough year for us. So you can go to our website. It's www.f the number two f.org for face to face. And there's a donate now button on there. You can sign up to donate once. You can sign up to donate monthly. Um, you can put us in your will. You know, I mean, there's all kinds of ways that you can support. Um, and we also, you know, as, as we have events too, if you want to support our events, um, next year, we're still trying to figure out what that's going to look like. We don't think we're going to hold our in-person uh, beer fest event again. It's normally in June and we still don't think that's going to be safe. So um, September is looking like our Art for Life is where our, our next big fundraiser is going to be. So, I mean, that just that's nine months before we can actually do a concerted event, you know, fundraising. So every every dollar that comes in is just it's crucial for us and allows us to keep doing the work that we're doing. Great. Well, I, as I always like to say, when it comes to donations, no amount is too small to make a big difference. So use uh, the next four days to jump online. And if you missed that website, we will put it on our own website at outbeatnews.com. Just click on show notes at the top of the page. Sarah and Lori, thank you so much first for the work that you do, the passion you have behind it, and for sharing an update with us tonight. Thank you, thank Greg, you. and for the work that you're doing as well. Thank you, and thanks for the opportunity to have us here today. And Happy New Year to you both. Yeah, thank you, Greg. And I'll add that Napa Valley College is offering a semester-length course about AIDS as part of the LGBT Studies Program. It's a fully online course, and registration is open for all right now. You can go to napavalley.edu and look for LGBT123. On behalf of our entire Outbeat radio team here at KRCB, I wish you a very happy and healthy new year. Be sure to join us next Sunday night for Outbeat Radio's Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on Radio 91. In the meantime, be safe and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News in Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia exclusively for KRCB Radio. Podcasts of our programs are available for on-demand play on our website at outbeatnews.com and on iTunes, TuneIn, Google Play, and Stitcher. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter for updates from Outbeat Radio News all month long. I'd love to change the world, but I don't know.
On air, online, or on the go, we are Radio 91, KRCB-FM Windsor and K215-CQ Santa Rosa, a service of Northern California Public Media. It's 9 p.m. Stay with us. Afropop is next.